0: Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Rakesh Mohan, a professor in the practice of international economics and finance at Yale School of Management and a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs at Yale. Prior to this, Professor Mohan was deputy governor of the Reserve Bank of India and secretary of the Department of Economic Affairs in the Ministry of Finance. Today we talk with him about his book, Growth with Financial Stability, Central Banking in an Emerging Market, which provides a rare insider view into the development and workings of central banking and the financial sector in India. Welcome Professor Mohan.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here uh, for the Macmillan Report.
0: Excellent. Let's begin with your book. Give us an overview of it.
1: Well, um, as the title says, it's Growth with Financial Stability. As it turns out, um, the whole world is currently beset with financial instability. And therefore, in that sense, I think that uh, the book uh, has come out at about the right time. Um, one of the defining characteristics uh, of Indian uh, economic policy uh, and economic performance since our independence in 1947 um, has been a relatively consistent growth, first somewhat slow for 30 years and then much faster the last 30 years. But we've always had financial stability, so we've not really had any banking crisis mm-hmm. in our more than 60 years of development since independence. So what the book uh, tries to do is to chronicle uh, India's development path over the whole period, Mm -hmm. but focusing particularly on fiscal and monetary policies along with financial sector policies, and the role, of course, of the central bank, that is the Reserve Bank of India, in that. Um, The first part of the book focuses on the coordination of fiscal and monetary policies along with financial sector policies, Mm Um, essentially making the point that it's extremely important to coordinate each of these macro policies as fiscal, monetary, and financial sector policies. And to some extent, in a a way, the problems that Europe is facing right now uh, because of the crisis, Mm -hmm. that they have a real issue to the coordination of monetary policy and fiscal policies because they have unified um, currency, unified monetary policy, whereas different fiscal policies... So that is illustrating, in fact, the problems that arise when, when you don't coordinate both. Right. So the first part of the book essentially uh, talks about how we have done that over the years, both during the highly controlled period uh, and then towards a more open economy period. Um, and uh, it makes the point that as you move, as in our case we have in the last 20 years, from being a relatively closed economy to an open economy, that you have to do this in a very gradual fashion so that each sector then responds appropriately. Of course, in real time, you never know what is the correct uh, pace of uh, liberalization, correct pace of economic reform, uh, but somehow I think that we have managed that uh, relatively well. The second part of the book focuses specifically on the financial sector, and once again, uh, how we have opened up the banking sector from, again, until 1990, between 1960, between 1970 and 1990, it become almost wholly government owned. Mm -hmm. And slowly we have introduced private sector banks and also made the government owned banks much more open uh, and also developed financial markets at the same time. So again, it's sort of a similar story of uh, gradual reform uh, on a consistent basis Mm -hmm. uh, so that each institution responds appropriately uh, to the changes that are being made Uh, while we've also been developing the financial markets, the uh, equity market, other capital markets, the debt market, so that the system becomes much more market-oriented and is much more open to the rest of the world. Um, I had an earlier book, which was published a couple of years back, uh, which was called uh, Monetary Policy in a Globalized uh, Economy, Mm -hmm. A Practitioner's View. Uh, So that is concentrated fully on monetary policy. So in this book, the only aspect of monetary policy I really deal with is Uh, the uh, how Indian monetary policy coped with uh, volatile capital flows and once again this is topical because uh, one of the most interesting things in the current crisis in the west is that there were huge capital flows between Europe and the US Mm -hmm. uh, in particular in both directions and how they've also had a role in causing some of the problems that exist Uh, in our case in the case of emerging markets it's not just India, but other emerging markets in Asia and Latin America, uh, cope with large volatile volatility and capital flows. And uh, we had to then adapt our fiscal and monetary policies and using a host of different instruments, including capital account management uh, techniques, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to have an independent monetary policy while having some capital account management, some capital controls, uh, and al- along with, uh, along with development of financial markets um, and a flexible uh, exchange rate. Um, And we are not that different in a way from the other emerging markets, and uh, one of the interesting things about the current crisis really is that Europe and the U.S. are in great difficulty, Mm -hmm. while emerging market countries in Asia and Latin America uh, have not had financial sector uh, problems as a consequence of this of this crisis and India is among those mm-hmm. countries. And so the third part of the book basically deals with that. Okay. And finally, uh, there is a whole section of the book uh, on the global financial crisis and uh, the trying to document how uh, it was somewhat loose uh, or accommodative monetary policy in the early 2000s mm-hmm. after the dot-com crash, combined with uh, very light or uh, light touch uh, regulation. Um, which basically pe- took the regulators' eyes off what is really happening in the economy. Mm-hmm. And then we had all the problems of subprime and then, of course, uh, everything else that happened, okay. including the huge explosion of financial innovations and derivatives that contributed to the crisis.
0: Okay. Okay. So we'll, we'll actually talk about each of those pieces. Yes. Um, what I'm wondering is uh, how how your perspective differs um, on India's economic growth in, in comparison comparison to what is widely believed about its economy?
1: Well, um, I'm not sure if it does differ, but mm-hmm. nonetheless uh, uh, I, I suppose that, that one, one thing that I would say is that there is a perception that um, we, uh, uh, we had a very poor economic performance in the first 30 years, since 1950, 1980, and then uh, a much better one. Mm-hmm. Now that is certainly true in terms of growth rates, that in the first 30 years we had about three and three and a half percent growth in GDP for over a 30-year period, and then um, average of about six, six and a half percent last 30 years, and of course something like eight percent in the last seven to eight percent in the last 10 years, so it's been growing continuously. Mm-hmm. So one of the points that I do make is that this has been a consistent story, and essentially going from low savings and investment rates to higher savings and investment rates. So it's been a consistent growth over the decades in domestic savings and investment. Uh, while of course in the earlier period the economy was much more closed mm-hmm. and the like later period the economy much more open. But a consistent story between different policy regimes mm-hmm. has been this, this uh, growth in uh, savings and investment. And that is of course what is necessary uh, to achieve economic growth. And the other point is that uh, even the first 30 years was a big departure over the previous 50 to 100 years where we had zero growth. So that 3, 3 3.5% was very low uh, by a current standard, but nonetheless, it was a big departure from the previous uh, 50 years.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, what are some of the current challenges India faces?
1: Well, the immediate challenge, of course, uh, which has now emerged really since last six months to one year, Mm -hmm. that uh, first, uh, after the 2008-09 crisis uh, in the world, um, we were able uh, to cope with that quite well, so that uh, uh, we also did a fiscal stimulus uh, like many countries did. Mm-hmm. We did a monetary stimulus as well.
0: And that's how you coped with and it primarily? And that's how we
1: coped with it primarily. And uh, we were able to um, to, to restrict the uh, impact on growth so that in uh, the first year, that is 2008-09, it growth just went down to about 6.8%. Mm-hmm. And then it came back up to over 8% uh, in 2009-10 and 10-11. Um, it's now that uh, th- I, think, I think most observers had expected that the world would be coming out of the crisis in 2011 and 2012, but because of the the Eurozone crisis mm-hmm. now, and also some of the problems in the United States to do with the fiscal uh, situation mm-hmm. and uh, some breakdown in Congress in terms of the agreement on what to do, mm-hmm. that we are now on the brink of another recession uh, in the developed economies. So as a consequence of that, the f- immediate challenge, of course, is uh, to cope with what may happen I- given the uncertainty in the rest of the world. Okay, and so that's the immediate challenge.
0: Okay, and how do you um, work to um, sustain lo- long-term growth? What are some of the strategies you think would work?
1: Um, well, um, the, uh, some of the issues that are emerging uh, in India are much more to do with human resource development. Um, One big opportunity we have is that our demographic uh, situation is different from other countries in the sense that uh, over the next uh, 20 to 30 years, Mm -hmm. um, the proportion of people in the working age group, say between 20 and 50, Mm -hmm. would be much higher than the other groups, that is children and old people. Mm so uh, this is w- what people characterize as a demographic dividend that we'll have that many more people working so it's a great opportunity to have much higher growth also with more people working with lower uh, with, with with fewer dependents that you can have higher savings and def- and consumption and and higher investment so this is really should be a period of very high growth however uh problem really is that uh, we uh, our, our the, the stock of education the stock of skills is low even relative to some of our peers. Okay. And so a major challenge is to, uh, one, make sure that, that the children now get good health, good nutrition, and good education mm-hmm. for the future, but also that people who are already in the labor force, uh, particularly say in the age of 15 to 30, who would therefore be there in the next 20 years, they're already in the labor force, Mm -hmm. that they need a lot of training, retraining, and perhaps adult education. As you're saying, that's a major issue. Mm -hmm. And along with that, of course, uh, much better health services than we currently have.
0: Is India also focusing on technology?
1: Um, Yes. Um, We um, uh, have, uh, we're trying to bring in new policies in higher education, Mm -hmm. um, in trying to open up that system as well because in the last uh, 40 years or so, we've basically had uh, uh, state-controlled higher education. Um, Now, there are many more initiatives taking place Mm -hmm. because once again, what we're finding is that there's there's a huge, huge increase in the number of people wanting to go to college and and, uh, getting higher uh, qualifications. Mm -hmm. And of course, the economy needs them to be able to invest in higher technology. So, for example, I am now currently working on long-term transport policy uh, for the country. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we find is that we really do not have enough expertise in any of the transport sectors to be able to go, in some sense, to the next level of transport services. What are the transport sectors? Um, uh, All of them, railways, um, roads, uh, civil aviation, um, urban transport, Mm -hmm. ports and shipping, And uh, what has happened in in the rest of the world, uh, in developed countries in particular, of course, is there's now much greater coordination between the different modes. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, all kinds of logistics companies um, which uh, transport freight uh, over different modes in a very efficient fashion Um, and you therefore need a lot of standardization uh, on how you transport these things. For example, a container can happily go from, say, a house or a factory to a truck, to a train, to a plane, or to a ship Mm -hmm. uh, very easily. But many things have to be organized to do that. Second, um, with GPS technology being available, it's also much easier to track everything, Sure. and you uh, can also use that for automatic tolling and things of that kind. Um, third, um, with the expectation of much higher energy prices over the next 20 to 30 years, mm-hmm. we probably need to invest much more in the railways and take uh, both goods and passengers off the roads because uh, they're obviously much more inefficient particularly in terms of energy use, and also possible climate change issues uh, coming up. So th- we really do need to invest a lot in uh, energy efficiency in transport, uh, because as we grow at something like 7 to 9% over the next 20 years, um, it, will, it will mean, for example, that if we do grow at that rate,
0: but, and that's 9 to 20% is huge. Yes.
1: So if you do go, uh, n- n- not 10%, uh, we, we'll oh, never okay. do 20%. Um, so if you do, if you do succeed in growing that rate after hopefully the world crisis gets over, mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to give one example of the challenges ahead, that uh, energy usage would go by a factor of four mm-hmm. uh, from where it is today to, say, 20 years from now which means that the usage of uh, fuels, coal, petroleum, all of this will go a factor of four, which means that you have to transport four times coal than you're transporting today, which means that you have to lay down a lot of railway lines, much more roads, and so on. So everything has an implication for everything else. And of course, along with that, that, all of this has to be done the financial sector will have to be also expanding at a similar rate to be able to finance all these uh, activities. Uh, One thing I haven't mentioned, uh, which I should have much earlier, is uh, agriculture, Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, still more than 50% of the people are engaged in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And if we are to grow at these rates, we'll have much greater urbanization, and also we'll need much more technology change in agriculture, much greater productivity in agriculture. Um, And Th- that is much more difficult to do because it's uh, because people are spread all over the country mm-hmm. uh, low education levels low skill levels and so once again we have to be investing a great deal in bringing new technology for different crops different mm-hmm. products fruits vegetables poultry meat milk sure. everything
0: and also the transportation and again, also transportation, again, transportation, a absolutely. Huge role in that,
1: And then transporting the stuff from the farm to the market mm-hmm. Um, and all the things that need to be done in between in terms of building a cold chain so that uh, that that uh, products uh, from a from a farm uh, can be preserved mm-hmm. uh, in cold storage sure. can go in refrigerated trucks and so there's a huge amount of work to be done in the supply chain right. and each of these means both investment in um, in money that is actually infrastructure and also hopefully getting the best use of new technology available in the world
0: Okay, you uh, touched upon the global economic crisis um, when we began. How do you? Wh- what role do you think India has to play in that? I think,
1: unfortunately, not much really, mm-hmm. uh, except making sure that don't that we don't contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which so far we haven't. Um, the I guess the only other uh, role that we could play, hopefully, is um, that one. One thing that strikes me, for example, is that. Uh, Just like the United States, we are a federal system, and so there is um, structure of fiscal federalism in terms of what the different Indian states can do in terms of borrowing, Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of the kind of indebtedness that they can get into. There are certain disciplines to do with that, and so one of the issues that is arising in Europe is, and they're having a meeting today, uh, this, the summit between the prime ministers, uh, the leaders of the European countries today, mm-hmm. and talk about a fiscal union, and uh, then obviously what, what they want is some kind of discipline uh, that some uh, central authority, like the European Commission uh, or the European Union, will then have over the different European countries. Right. Now, we have that in the sense that uh, we are, of course, an integrated country and not different countries, but we have a large number of states, like the U.S. does, and they all borrow in the market. But we do have certain uh, rules under which they operate so that they don't get excessively indebted. So I think that maybe uh, as the European Fiscal Union uh, does uh, start operating if they succeed this evening, um, and they're probably discussing this as we talk uh, here right Mm -hmm. now in Europe, that as they succeed and you have more of a fiscal union, perhaps I think different federal countries like the United States, India, and others can then contribute in finding ways and means for Europe to resolve their problems.
0: Okay. Final question. What are some of the conclusions you reach in your book?
1: Um, basically that um, very, um, very traditional conclusions in a sense mm-hmm. that um, in, in order to grow on a consistent and uh, financially stable basis, one, you must have responsible and prudent fiscal policy, mm-hmm. that you do not get excessively indebted, um, and that you do contain populist pressures for f- for fiscal expenditures. Two, that monetary policy should be flexible uh, and not uh, bound by one particular rule, uh, and that you do need to make sure that you keep prices low, inflation low, mm-hmm. um, along with maintaining financial stability, and, of course, in the case of an emerging market like ours, uh, you really have to have an eye on, uh, on, 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 in, on inducing the financial sector to contribute to growth. Um, third, um, that whereas uh, financial openness and economic openness is absolutely essential in the globalized economy, that you do need to make sure that things that are not under your control, like, for example, currently there's a crisis in Europe and the U.S., we need to make sure that we have appropriate uh, capital account uh, management techniques, including capital controls, to insulate ourselves from the ills of what happened in the rest of the world, uh, but be open enough in terms of flexible exchange rates um, and uh, open trade to get the benefits of globalization and protect ourselves from the ills of it.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing some of your work.
1: Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity.
0: For more information about Professor Mohan and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.